Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 51. We're excited to be joined this week by Dr. Allegra Gordon and L.B. Moore. Allegra is a social epidemiologist who studies the mental and physical health impacts of discrimination and the effects of gender norms on the health of young people. She's on the research faculty in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital and at Harvard Medical School. Our other guest, LB, is the LGBTQ plus program manager at Program Rise and Framingham Glass, a program providing services to LBGTQ plus youth of color and young people living with HIV. LB is also a research specialist at Boston Children's Hospital doing research on transgender youth. Along with another former podcast guest, Dr. Carly Gus, LB and Allegra are currently working together on a book chapter focused on gender diversity and eating disorders. So we're really lucky to have both of them continue their collaboration by joining us for a conversation on the show. Allegra and LB, welcome to the Full Bloom Podcast. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) So before we get into the topic and the research, we're wondering if each of you could tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and the work that you do. And we'll ask Allegra if you wouldn't mind going first. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm a social and behavioral scientist. I've been working in the field of public health for uh, just about 20 years. And I primarily do research on the effects of stigma and discrimination on the mental and physical health of adolescents and young adults. And I have a particular focus on the experiences of LGBTQ uh, youth. I also, I guess I would add that uh, I, another sort of lens that I bring to this discussion is I identify as a, a queer, white, cisgender women, woman. And um, a newer identity for me that's relevant to this podcast is that I'm a, a mom to twin toddlers. So those, mm. that's, those are some of the, the frames that I have in talking about this work. And how about you, LB? Yeah, so my name is LB. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, or Zizier. So I currently work as the LGBTQ plus program manager at Program Rise and Framingham Glass, which is briefly um, a program that provides a bunch of services for LGBTQ plus youth of color and their allies in the Metro West region right outside of Boston through um, social supports and harm reduction and community education. Um, So that's where I currently am. But my professional background, I would describe as a bit eclectic. So I'm credentialed as a behavioral health clinician. So that clinical lens um, with specialized training and a practice working with trans and gender non-binary youth. Though my education actually focused primarily on sport coaching and sport psych, which is not as much as central to my work these days. And then I, I know Allegra in part through my work 
as part of a research team at Boston Children's Hospital working with trans teens and their families. So I would add that I'm a white trans Jew with disabilities, and particularly relevant for today's topic, I am also a non-binary person with extensive experience living in my body um, in a world that exerts tremendous pressure and scrutiny on the bodies of all people and on trans and non-binary people in unique ways. Yeah. Oh, it's so wonderful to have both of you. And I'm excited just to see how the conversation unfolds. But this topic, some of our listeners may know, we touched upon kind of what does body positivity look like for trans and gender nonconforming youth last season. And one of the interesting takeaways from that conversation was that body positivity even may not be the point. And that word, um, you know, that term may be um, need to be sort of reshaped. We were offered words like body neutrality and body liberation last season, but certainly, mm-hmm. ho- however, we're defining body positivity, resilience, and self-esteem in young people is what we're up to here at Full Bloom, and what we really want to help parents and healthcare providers help protect. And so maybe we'll kind of go to LB first, but why is it essential to address gender in conversations about how young people relate to their bodies? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And then if if desired and appropriate, mm-hmm. I know we were thinking more about body positivity too, and, and I'd love to say more about that. But um, in terms of, of how does gender fit in with these things, you know, gender identity, like any other identity that we hold, is inherently embodied. It lives in the body. And here's a little bit about what I mean by that as an incredibly brief example. So imagine a young trans man that I work with. He's had to navigate for himself what it means to be a man with breasts, a man with a vagina. His relationship with his body is inevitably shaped both by his experiences with his actual anatomical body and others' ideas about those parts, of course, um, as well as his clarity as himself as a man. So this is one key element of what it means to live in his body, while other elements, of course, include other identities, whether that's being a young person, being a person of color, being a person with immigration experience. All of these things live in the body. So in working with or raising uh, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming young people, we have to acknowledge some of the unique body-related and body-image-related stressors that impact them, things like dysphoria, transphobia, whether or not gender-affirming medical treatments are in the picture, and the notion of passing, which I I can say more about. So dysphoria is one of many umbrella terms that I find myself using when speaking about these experiences. So dysphoria sort of broadly refers to challenging emotions, uh, thoughts, and body experiences that come as a direct result of living in a body that doesn't align with who I experience myself to be. So when we're thinking about trans and non-binary folks, that might be that the anatomy with which I came standard equipped is not the right anatomy for me, um, whether that's in pieces or in whole. And that may or may not be what what how dysphoria fo- shows up for folks. It may be about anatomy. It may be um, around voice. It might be around height. It might be around um, people don't experience me or treat me in the world as my affirmed gender. And that creates incredible negative feelings in my experience. Um, so there, I think, are many ways that people could define dysphoria. And that's, that's what I'll sort of offer for now. Um, and as you might imagine, comes up a lot in this experience of what does it mean to live in a body 
um, as a trans or non-binary person. And if I just experience dysphoria and what that dysphoria sort of flavor is like is really going to impact other ways that I live in this body. Mm -hmm. Transphobia really briefly refers to um, a set of systems and attitudes that suggest and claim that trans people are wrong or broken or sinful or not good enough or uh, shameful or pervert. You know, I could go on and on with negative adjectives and treats us accordingly. Um, so we see transphobia, yeah, sure, on the interpersonal level, right? When someone uh, uses a slur or other mean, cruel words to talk about me, but also in terms of systems, right? So thinking about where law and policy impact my ability to live as a person in the world. Gender-affirming medical treatments, again, briefly refers to a whole slew of things that might be accessing the hormones that are right for your body based on your identity. It might be various surgeries that are right for your body based on your experience. That's sort of, the, that's the brief version. We'll stick with that. And then the notion of passing. So passing in this context refers to being seen by other people as your affirmed gender and usually as non-transgender. Um, so what I mean by that is, if you are a trans man and wishing to be experienced as a man in the world, passing might refer to, you know, without having to explain your identity to other people, you walk into the store and someone calls you sir. Passing may be important to folks as a way of feeling affirmed in their, affirmed in their gender, which can be huge. Um, passing is also really strongly associated with safety um, as trans people who are perceived in the world as non-transgender, so cisgender, are much less likely to face harassment and violence. Um, so this piece of passing can have a lot of layers, um, including the fact that, you know, I can share that as a non-binary person, I don't want to have to pass and I don't want to have to think about passing. And I acknowledge that I am safer in the world if people experience me and perceive me as cisgender. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's different for different trans and non-binary people, because we know, for instance, that transphobic violence disproportionately impacts trans and non-binary folks of color, trans women, folks with disabilities, et cetera. So these layers are here. But that those layers are so important in understanding why gender has to be part of a holistic conversation about raising and working with young people or people of all ages um, who are living in bodies. Yeah. Can I just add, um, that was so um, well put, and I was just thinking about one other piece in terms of gender affirmation and medical systems when we're thinking about younger children, that uh, we're not necessarily thinking about medical intervention when we're thinking about gender affirmation for prepubertal or um, yeah, so young children, but young children may still be interested in accessing a gender-affirming provider who can help families think through um, all the ways that they can affirm their child, that their child may want to um, sort of be socially affirmed in other ways, even in their lives that, in, that don't involve any kind of specific medical intervention um, at that time. So your, your previous guests, um, Sabra and Carly, may have talked more about mm -hmm. that, but so that we're thinking about, we can think about gender affirmation in both medical ways and in social ways, as LB was describing. Mm-hmm. Could we just engage you guys, both of you, in this conversation about body positivity? Because I know I alluded to how that that term even, and it's a big part of our kind of lingo here at the Full Bloom Project, you know, that we were 
invited to think about the nuances of this term and how it may not always be the point. And so we'd love to just hear both of your thoughts about even this using this term body positivity with transgender and non-binary youth and, and any reframes that you may want to offer. Yeah, thank you for thinking about it. It's something that LB and I have been talking about and, and that generally is something I've been on a learning curve around myself personally. So yeah, as, as LB was sort of beginning to describe, when we're talking about, you know, this sort of various layers of ways that, that people are living in their bodies, thinking about their bodies, the notion of body positivity might not necessarily be the best fit. Um, it can suggest that trans and non-binary people need to maybe get over or move past um, their valid negative experiences of living in their bodies. Um, and it, it also can suggest that trans and non-binary people might not need life-saving, gender-affirming procedures. They just might need more body positivity. Um, it's something that I have to think about a lot in the research that we do when we think about the implications, that the implications of this work are not putting the onus back on to individuals to, you know, feel better about yourselves and, you know, these health disparities are going to go away because that's that's just not true. So uh, it doesn't mean that either that the the term body positively is inherently a problem. It doesn't mean that we have to stop using it. Um, it just means that it might be appropriate in work um, with some trans and non-binary youth and it might not be appropriate in other, um, in, in other contexts or for other people. And I can really jump in on that. I think, you know, in the clinical work and in, in some of my lived experiences, folks who know me will not be surprised to hear me say that we need to take a both and approach, right? <laughs> um, so I've been thinking a lot about body positivity as like one end of a spectrum that we as parents and providers really want to walk along with young people, right? It's it's part of why y'all talk about it so much and it's it's such sort of a core piece of the work you're doing in like body positive parenting and children work. And we don't want to let go of that end of the spectrum. I would say that we also may not want to cling to it, body positivity, as the ultimate or only goal. Because otherwise, I think we really miss out on the incredible growth and healing that's possible and happening as young people work towards something like body neutrality, right? So here, maybe I'm thinking about body neutrality as a process in which we we honor the challenges that come with living in this body at this time without ignoring or sugarcoating them, as well as becoming open to the things about this body that, say, aren't awful. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for many of the young people that I work with, this is the appropriate place to start, this sort of like body neutrality piece. So what we're working with is sometimes along the lines of, well, I hate my body and I'd like to hate it less. And mm -hmm. what a beautiful place to do work from, you know? I also work with young people who come in and they say, you know, what do you want to work on? They say, I want to feel more positively about my body. Can we work on body positivity? And I say, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I have to suggest that it's really a both and here rather than an either or. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say I see that in my, in my office as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That too much emphasis on body positivity when this, that's too far away is is not um, validating or engaging in, in the progress that could be made. I, I also think that the re reminder, and I appreciate that neither of you are tossing this term out, 
but the reminder that we have to be thoughtful and careful about it because the last thing we want in in an uh, operation to try to you know <laughs> increase liberation for all is mm. to inadvertently <clears throat> use oppressive language or invalidating language and it was one of the best takeaways from our episode last season with those folks uh, that we talked to because we would never want a parent to think that it's even their job to try to make their child feel more positive Mm -hmm. about their body, um, especially when something like gender dysphoria is at play. So Mm. it's an important nuance and I think it's, it's a good framework for us to kind of keep going. Mm. Yeah. I think I so appreciate, and, and I apologize, I don't know y'all's voices well enough yet to know who said <laughs> that in your practice, um, you're really thinking that about was, this. Th- that was Leslie. Leslie, thank <laughs> although, you. I, although, me too, me too, but Leslie. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, as I was thinking about this, clinically in particular, I think that if we're working on any experience, whether that's, you know, in this moment, sort of body image, or we're talking about depression, or even pleasure with movement and exercise kind of stuff, we're not going to aim for a 10 if the person we're working with is at a negative four, right. um, that's not realistic or, you know, I would say it's not person-centered. You know, if someone's at a negative four, maybe we're aiming for a negative one or a zero and then we reassess. Um, so in my mind, really thinking about this as a spectrum along which we can walk and work with folks to me feels really human. And that doesn't mean taking positivity off of it for sure. Yeah. And in that same realm or related, one of the things that we've started changing about our language is moving from this idea of the thin ideal to this Mm -hmm. idea of appearance ideals. And we wanted to gather your insights. Um, Allegra, we'll start with you. Uh, around what you find young people are reporting as appearance ideals for gender nonconforming trans youth. Yeah, so it's, um, we've been, our our research team has been doing a couple different sort of formative research studies over the last couple years with, uh, in some cases, with LGBTQ um, groups, focus groups broadly defined, and more recently in a recent study specifically where we're doing, uh, we've done a bunch of online focus groups with trans and non-binary young people and and started trying to have these conversations uh, about sort of what are the messages that people are experiencing. We have a particular interest in what people are experiencing in online environments, in part because of what emerged in the the, the earlier work where the conversations couldn't happen without talking about social media, basically. Mm-hmm. No surprise. Um, <laughs> that's that's the imagery that everybody's inundated with. And it's also social media is can be such an incredibly powerful supportive resource for mm-hmm. trans and non-binary youth who may be geographically isolated or just not have access to resources um, in person, um, wherever they are. And so there's this complicated, there's a real tension there around the incredible value of what social media and online connectedness can offer people and the kinds of models and images, role models, powerful examples of of strength and uh, hope and just connection that people can find with images that don't end up making people feel good about themselves um, or begin to interfere with with their own sense of finding their own path. So for example, so people have talked about in these focus groups, have talked about the the appearance pressures that they're facing um, and, and people talk about sort of navigating appearance pressures both from 
the dominant world that we all live in, the big messages that we're getting from uh, celebrities, pop stars, our, our other forms of media um, that we all talk about when we talk about appearance ideals, generally those femininity ideals, those masculinity ideals from the dominant culture, and then also all the different ways people navigate within community pressures um, and within community ideals, whether related to their family, um, cultural background, um, ethnic backgrounds, and also their sort of gender or sexuality-related community experiences. And it can be very vexing for young people that they're experiencing pressures both from this larger society and then also from within community and feeling some kind of some some um, dare I say even kind of a, a conformity around sort of what ideal bodies might be even within trans and non-binary or separately um, depending on one's gender identity what those mm-hmm. those messages of an ideal body might be and that can be very vexing the translation of sort of mainstream appearance ideals for trans and non-binary youth is in part based on the importance for for many trans and non-binary folks of passing, right? So just naming that in terms of safety, in terms of the persistence of those messages, right? Of these are what women look like, right? And um, these are what men look like. These are what attractive men look like. This is what a successful woman looks like, right? Is so insidious for any young person. And then potentially, not only is it, that's what a woman looks like, but in order to be safe, that's what I have to look like. Um, or in order to to see myself as myself, that's what I have to look like. So thinking about some of the context through which I think some of those mainstream appearance ideals get perpetuated, um, I follow the logic of that. So just sort of naming that. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us too to get sort of stuck in the the, the binary, right? Because mm-hmm. it's what we're yeah. presented. So mm-hmm. thinking a little bit about the non-binary piece too, you know, clinically, a lot of what I'm hearing really reflects um, not only those binary sort of expectations for cisgender, um, that is non-transgender people. And for non-binary people, you know, it is funny. It's like, I, I was thinking earlier today, it's, it's, there's something about, oh, right. Well, we don't want to be in the male box or the female box. And so suddenly people have put us in the non-binary box too. Like there's this other box, um, that can really come with expectations. And so these images of like imagining, what does, quote, the non-binary person, TM, look like? We are sort of provided an image within this community. And that image of someone who is really non-binary with air bunnies is Mm. typically someone who is white, assigned female at birth, so like a trans-masculine person, typically, definitely thin, masculine of center, and then maybe dabbles in like some jewelry or makeup. So like there's a little bit of gender nonconformity in there, but with really clear limits um, on this is this is how to be appropriately non-binary, which is, of course, really narrow and damaging for everyone, including the non-binary folks who don't fit in that box. Yeah. I mean, the, the parallel that we more broadly talk about just the sort of appearance ideals and how they really reflect like 1% of the the human experience and how they really just drive people to sort of believe that there's something wrong with them if they don't fit. And this is just like a perfect parallel of how Mm -hmm. even within this non-binary community, there's, it sounds like there is still this very unrealistic standard that's just not, a reflective of who is really in that community. 
Yeah, and it's been interesting to me when I've been um, talking about some of the research that we're doing, you know, at, at conferences and in spaces with, you know, adolescent health providers who think a lot about these issues. It seems like sometimes the finding that is most striking to people is the one related to what you're talking about, LB, that one of our focus group participants had a quote almost identical to what you just said, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. for non-binary people, it seems like you need to be white, skinny and masculine to be non-binary. Mm-hmm. And that is, that really, I think, shocks a lot of people because there is this idea that the gender categories have been exploded and therefore, <laughs> every you know, everything else should follow suit. And so I think it takes those of us who aren't having that experience a minute <laughs> to realize that these these categories, these these systems, these structures are really they're they're powerful. They're still with yes, us, right? Very powerful. Yeah, hard right. to hard to escape from almost or grow past. Sure. Um, because the non-binary piece is there. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just no, have to no. name. You know, thinking about yes. these ideals, it's like to describe like a white masculine of center person it's like well of course right we may be talking about gender but that doesn't mean that like poof patriarchy's over and like poof <laughs> racism is over and we have to name those things in order to sort of make sense of what might otherwise feel like well that's silly of us mm-hmm. right we're still right. breathing this air we're still mm-hmm. swimming in this water um, which and just it's still sort harming of, us yeah. but it, and it also the sort of the silver lining there is that just reminding that we're all human <laughs> Like, we're all equal. <laughs> like, none of us are really excluded from from mm. that reality. And mm. isn't there some, there's like, given how divisive our, our world is, it's like, wow, we have we have that in common, you know, mm. no matter what. But anyway, I, Leslie, go, go for it with your next question. Well, I wanted to just hear a little bit more about the bold study. Mm. And kind of what the research is telling us and what we can disseminate to our parents as well as kind of the clinical perspective on this study. So I would love to hear from both of you about this, the BOLD study. Sure, yeah. Yeah, some of what I was just talking about is, was referencing that very study. So that was a study we started a couple of years ago called the Being Ourselves, Living in Diverse Bodies Study, or BOLD. Um, that was with college students, uh, and that was with anyone who was identified as LGBTQ in some way. And so that's where we we began to see some of these themes come up that, that LB and I are now discussing. There, there were a couple key things that just kept coming up in these groups and are coming up now in our groups with trans and non-binary people that I think are important to think about for public health folks and certainly interesting challenges to think about from a parenting perspective, too. Um, So young people in these studies, one of the things they talked a lot about was there was a kind of a a really mixed up way that people talked about stereotypes, so LGBTQ stereotypes, what they see the world put on them, Mm -hmm. and then what they have internalized, which is a little bit different than how we often talk about appearance ideals because we often don't do it in terms of stereotypes and stigma specifically. So, you know, for a, a young queer cis woman, she sort of described, well, this is what people think that I should look like as a lesbian. Mm. Um, this is what, you know, it feels like um, to actually be a fat identified queer woman. And it's really, those two things are really different, but these are the stereotypes I see out there. And that that sounds a lot like the way we talk about appearance ideals, but there's this added layer of thinking about in terms of this society is really not accepting me for who I am as a, as a young queer cis woman, uh, which is a, sort of just brings another valence to our conversations about 
appearance ideals um, that we sort of just have to be aware of that young people are navigating these ideals and then they're also trying to figure out what it what it means to be a young queer or trans person in the world uh, in a world that is often not very friendly or for especially as LB was pointing out for many people actually quite dangerous so I think that that key interaction is a big thing that that's come out of these studies and that uh, we're still figuring out what that means in terms of what we want to carry forward and from a public health perspective. Uh, we know that we want interventions that can name these things, as you've been saying, LB, sort of talking about the ways that heterosexism, cissexism, racism, fatphobia are coming together, that we can't just talk about appearance um, mm-hmm. and sort of what the media is telling people to look like without talking about those processes. So this is, you know, I'm kind of reiterating what you've already said, but um, this is a, a big thing that we found. And then I think the other, the other kind of key take home um, is this question of the role that trans and non-binary communities play as incredible sources of support and resilience. Um, and so even while there's all of this complexity to navigate these messages, this kind of uh, push towards or feeling that there are these ideals, uh, a lot of people also talked about the incredible wells of resources they've found online, found in community, you know, in person or virtually, or what they're looking for. That's something that some people are still sort of really seeking, but that they recognize um, is really valuable. And so that's those sort of within community strengths are key for us to be building on, to know that that, that that strength and resilience is, you know, functioning very well, given all that young people are navigating. It's actually, you know, the levels of resilience are incredible. And so that's a strength that f- external folks, parents, public health people thinking about these issues um, need to think about learning from. And LB, what, what, what did you learn from or take away really from being... Um, part of this study. So I will share. So I wasn't part of Bold. Um, I am lucky enough to be in touch with Allegra through some other work. Um, So I can't respond to the clinical perspectives specifically on that. So, you know, not to go back to some of the more challenging pieces when Allegra ended her her statement (laughs) on such a high note. Um, But I think back and forth. (laughs) Yeah, because it's always both. Yeah. Um, and this piece around navigating stereotypes, right? And the stereotype being fundamentally part of what does it mean to be have a queer identity in the world? And a complicating factor I also see in there with young people is there can become this real tension, right? So I've talked a couple of times about the value of passing for people at different levels. And what I hear young people struggling with as well, and, and maybe you heard it a little bit, as I said, like, I don't want to have to pass. This challenge that young people struggle with of, if I pass as cisgender or if I pass as straight, am I thus also invisible in my truth as a queer person? Um, and thus there being not only external pressures to not look queer or to look a certain way, but then potentially also internal pressures from LGBTQ plus community and values of there can exist pressure of what does it mean to be um, a cisgender queer woman who is very feminine presenting? Right. Mm -hmm. And like, well, that's not what a queer woman looks like. So I don't see you. I don't validate you. You aren't real here. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're a non-binary person who dresses very, very masculinely or very, very femininely, well, you're not non-binary. You're just Mm -hmm. a man who thinks, I don't know, is trending. Um, mm-hmm. And that can add like a really complex layer, right? Where, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's partially based on safety, right? You know, okay, I'm going to navigate this kind of space. 
how do I need to express my gender to get my needs met? And maybe that's really different entering a queer space. And that does show up clinically. And the reason I think that it shows up clinically is because there's such an intense both and happening there. Uh, Where on the one hand, I want to navigate the world safely and with as little interaction with transphobia and queerphobia as I can manage. And on the other hand, I really value being and expressing myself. And how do I do both of those things in this body? Yeah, I think what you're bringing up today about safety is it's so important. And it didn't come up in our last conversation because I think this we're sort of getting to dig a little deeper So it's making me want to jump to this question about protective factors Mm. because Mm -hmm. that is one of the, you know, we're very, you know, we're both parents and we know that there's a limit to what we can really do to (laughs) protect our kids from the darker moments and experiences of the, of living in the world. That being said, we are also uh, very pro do what you can to decrease risk and increase protective factors. So your children can fully bloom as their authentic selves. So what are protective factors for trans and gender non-binary youth when it comes to all of it, disordered eating, other health, health risks in particular, what do you really want parents to know and to do to increase these protective factors. All right. We're, we're pointing at each other and going, we have lots to say. You have lots to say. Um, <laughs> we, want, we want to hear it all. So yes. okay, wh- if you want to roll, you could flip a coin, whoever wants to go first. <laughs> I'm already talking, so let's go with that. Um, yeah, so I mean, I could go on and on and on, and I will stick to just a couple of points to be fair to all. The first thing that always comes up for me is access to needed gender-affirming care whether that's therapy or hormones or procedures, as well as social transition support, like clothes that align with someone's uh, affirmed gender expression, as well as like non-surgical affirmation tools like binders and gaffs. So those are specific things that help people modulate their anatomy in a way that feels more affirming and isn't surgical. So for example, um, a binder is a type of compression undergarment that for people who have breasts helps not only compress so that there's um, a reduced experience of having breasts, but also a reduced appearance of having breasts. So that's a totally non-surgical intervention that folks might have access to. If the trans or non-binary young person wants them, access to these forms of care are so, so, so important and cannot be overstated. Access to affirming environments, which I mean by Places where young folks' gender identities are respected without conditions that require body changes. And what I mean there is, if our young people are told or it's shown to them that they will only be acknowledged as women once they have breasts, for example, we are telling them really clearly that their body is not acceptable if they want to be treated as the woman they are right now. Mm -hmm. See people where they are and listen to them. I will, I will probably say listen to them another hundred times. And then, okay, one more, and then I'll pass it off. We need access to models and other trans and non-binary young people and adults who have compassionate relationships with their bodies. Lifting up those voices, supporting those groups. I know that we have parents out here. Are you connecting with other parents of trans and, and non-binary young people and helping facilitate those conversations about compassionate relationships with with our bodies. If your providers out there, are you supporting your colleagues who are running these kinds of spaces or getting the training you need to help support these kinds of spaces or facilitate them? So this sort of direct intersection with 
body and also having models of what does it mean to have a relationship with my body that isn't only based on dysphoria and oh. hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with all of that here, here. And then the other level to bring in to that conversation, and this is your referencing this by talking about affirming environments. And I think we can talk explicitly about protective factors at the policy level. So that it's just to to remember that we can think about our, our own lives and also think about how we can make change at the policy level. So there's, A, there's an urgent need for more research in this area. But I do think we can learn a lot from um, some of the really amazing work um, that's gone on research on sexual minority youth. Um, it's being led by um, folks like Julia Raithman, Mark Hatzenbuehler, and others. And what they've done in their in their research is they've demonstrated that youth who live in states or lived in states with protective policies like policies permitting same-sex marriage before it was legal nationwide in the U.S. So youth who lived in those states with more supportive environments related to sexual orientation fared better in terms of mental health than youth who lived in states without those policies or with actively discriminatory policies. I mean, I think that's very powerful research to think about the role that the policy environment has in, you know, ultimately making it down to the level of the young person and their well-being. We don't have the same data yet that I know of related to anti-trans policies, which we can talk about in a moment, is um, where there's a slew of new terrifying efforts in that realm. Um, But I do think that we would see similar effects in terms of protective policies that are there to uh, prevent discrimination against trans and non-binary youth are very likely to show a protective effect on um, youth's mental health. Anecdotally, from a clinical perspective, people living in spaces with discriminatory policies are worse off for it. So like, yes, we need the research. And <laughs> from one clinician's perspective, we're not doing well. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. Right. We, we can we take action now. We don't have to yeah. wait. We right. don't have to wait. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we, um, we do know we have so much more to ask you and for you to share with our listeners. But we also want to be very mindful of parents' time. So we are going to ask you the million-dollar question (laughs) and know that we will probably be wanting you to come back on and talk more (laughs) if you're willing. But LB, I'll ask you first. If each parent listening today to this podcast took away and did one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? I feel like I've been lovingly put into a corner that I have to choose one thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll go with this. I'll go with my gut here. I would ask parents and other listeners to create space and facilitate skill building for young people in our lives to explore the internal experience of what it means to live in their bodies. It definitely means being in conversation with rather than talking over or even correcting young people when they describe having a hard time in their bodies, um, really engaging with that. It means providing connection to other people who share identities like theirs, whether that's you know in this moment about gender identity, or but also racial identity, disability status, to build more positive and interpersonal and internal relationships with the idea of, of like, I'm living in this body. How, how do I learn about that? How do I do that? How do I learn even about how 
I can experience this. And maybe with a specific young person, that's about, you know, making it suck less, like we've talked about. Maybe there's room for gratitude work in there, which I really believe in. And I can share from, you know, from my lived experience, building gratitude for my, like, human capacity to metabolize fuel went a really, really long way in being able to live with both an enhanced relationship with my body and dysphoria. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it means looking at the way that you as a parent or a provider talk about your body also, your child's body and transgender people. You have so, so much power to support trans and non-binary youth live well in their bodies. You just have to listen to them. It's mm -hmm. wonderful. And Allegra? I mean, that's such a closer. <laughs> I know. How are you going to follow though. that? I have, There's no competition here. <laughs> Maybe you can you can shift the order around. <laughs> and um, but I, I do have just an, another another angle. All right, what what to take away as parents? And now I'm also sort of wearing my parent hat. Is to think about how we can help children learn to recognize and resist gender stereotypes in particular. And I'm, we're interested in all the things, but right now I'm thinking about gender um, by giving them uh, you know, access to books, media, and other models of all the different ways that people can be girls and boys and non-binary and none of the above and multiple categories. And you know, the sort of disclosure piece is that as a parent of young children, someone who's pretty new at this still on the parenting side, I myself find I'm having, I'm finding this even harder to do than I expected. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's what I spend my professional life thinking about. It's like how, you know, we undermine gender stereotypes to improve public health. But, you know, the gendered messages and the ways that people have of interacting with my assigned male children are so strong and come from every quarter. And, you know, that being said, I still, you know, I'm trying to hold on to hope and to build up my own confidence um, we really do have so many more wonderful books and toys. We didn't talk about this uh, beforehand, but you know, even Mattel is trying to hop on board with this new non-binary doll. You know, there's a hmm. there are shifting cultural conversations happening, mm -hmm. whatever they may mean. It does give me some hope that we can actually, you know, keep doing better and better for our children, and really, really help them be the generation that. That keeps moving, pushing us forward, um, and in breaking down gender stereotypes and stigma. Wonderful. Well, yeah. thank you both for taking time out of your careers and and lives to share your insights and work with our with our community. Yes, and we we do mean it. I'm sure we will be knocking on your door again to join us again. Um, this conversation, it's such a nice way to build on what we started last season. And really, we do strive to make the Full Bloom Project very inclusive. And, you know, it's like you were saying, Allegra, sometimes it's, you know, it's hard. It's like you're, you're well-intentioned. In and then we end up de dedicating a lot more airtime to things that afflict a very specific type of population. And, even the fact that we sort of designate this episode or last season to this particular topic, I think it's a call for us to figure out also a way to Integrate. be more integrative. Yeah, so mm -hmm. that each and every time we're speaking, that you don't, we don't need a separate episode necessarily, although we, mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt, I think, because there's just <laughs> so mm -hmm. much to cover. And I think there are fundamentals that 
parents listening just desperately need. But I, I want us, and I, I know Leslie and I will continue to think about ways we can just ensure that we're taking everyone into account. We're trying to speak to everyone and parents of every type of child that's, you know, out there. So thank you for this. Mm, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. It was a pleasure to talk with you both. Thank you. And you, LB, as yes. ever. Yes. <laughs> and I, I feel comfortable in this moment speaking for both of us that we have more feelings. So feel free <laughs> to bring us back. <laughs> So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what we're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can continue producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening, and remember to tune back in next time for more body-positive parenting wisdom. Mm -hmm.